Welcome back to the Med School Tutors Podcast, where we draw on our proven results since 2006 to provide you with high yield tips and proven guidance to help reduce stress and give you tangible tools for success from pre-med through residency. Let's dive in. All right. Hi, everyone. Happy Wednesday. Thank you guys for joining me tonight. This is Med School Tutors webinar edition of Know Thy Shelf Pediatrics. Hosted by me, Eli, it's nice to meet you all tonight virtually. Thank you for joining. We really appreciate you being here, and we hope you find this helpful. While we wait for everyone to show up, I'll just introduce myself a little bit and go over the agenda about what we're going to talk about tonight. And then we'll talk a little bit about med school tutors and who we are, what we do, before we jump into the content of Know Thy Shelf Pediatrics and how you can excel both at your pediatrics rotation and your pediatric shelf exam. So who am I? I'm a board-certified pediatrician. I'm a, currently a fellow in pediatric emergency medicine at Boston Children's Hospital, Harvard Medical School. I went to med school at UMass State School, represent, and I've been with med school tutors for going on seven years now. I'm a USMLE tutor, step one, step two. I tutor shelf exams. I tutor step three, and now I also tutor for the pediatric board exams as well. So it's nice to meet you, and I hope you find this session helpful. What we'll cover today, we're going to go over a lot. And my goal at the end of this is to have you feeling confident and comfortable, whether you're already in your pediatrics rotation or entering it soon. My goal is for you to have tips, tricks, and high yield information that'll help you exceed both when you're taking care of patients and studying for your test. We'll start by going over an overview of the pediatric clerkship. We'll talk about children because they're not small adults. You might hear that once or twice on your rotation. We do love saying it, I apologize in advance. We'll talk about keys for success on your pediatric rotation. We'll talk about what a day in the life of a pediatrician looks like. And when you're rotating through pediatrics, what you might expect on your rotations and how to approach all of those settings in order to succeed. We'll talk about maximizing your clerkship studies, how you can be successful not only in between times when you're taking care of patients, but when outside the hospital during the multitude of time I'm sure you get. We'll talk about your maximize, we'll talk about how to maximize your shelf success. We'll talk about resources. We'll talk about study schedule. We'll talk about the things that you're going to be asked that you might not learn on the wards in order to make sure that you do as well on that shelf exam as you can. We'll talk a little bit about MST, who we are, how we can help you succeed, where our expertise lies. And hopefully at the end, I'll answer some of the questions that you have as we go along. So just a little bit about us. Who are we? Med school tutors specializes in one-to-one -one online tutoring. What does that mean? We are med students, residents, fellows, attendings, who have scored in the top percentiles of the USMLE exam. Step one, step two, step three are shelf exams. And most importantly, we care a lot about students. We care a lot about our students' success, and we are here to ensure that you guys succeed. We've been doing this for a long time, way back since 2006 and we have tutored hundreds of thousands of hours when it comes to student success and making sure that our students not only increase their scores, do well in their clinical exams, do well taking care of patients on the wards, and approach their third years, their fourth years, their applications, and residency in general with a hop in their step and making sure that you guys are confident and comfortable while you do one of the most important jobs there is out there, taking care of patients. So we're gonna jump right into it. An overview of the pediatric clerkship. This might not surprise you, you're gonna be taking care of children, children and adolescents. So patients that are zero to 18 years old, that includes newborns, 
a really important part and often overlooked when thinking about preparing for your pediatric clerkship. It also means taking care of adolescents. So the fun thing about pediatrics is that you get to take care of patients that really encompass an extremely wide range of pathology. Your healthy newborns, your patients in the NICU, the neonatal ICU, anywhere from a pre-gestational age as early now, it's 22 weeks gestation, up through the newborn nursery, that's a different set of problems. It's a different approach. It's a different skill set. You have your infants before age one, different set of problems, different skill set. You've got your toddlers, different problems, different skill set. You can see where this is going. We take care of school-aged children. We take care of adolescents. And each of those populations requires a different skill set, a different knowledge base, and a different approach. And making sure that you're well-versed in not only the knowledge, but how to interact, how to be successful, how to get along with these patients, if they can talk to you, not all of them can, not their fault, developmentally appropriate then you'll succeed. So we'll talk a little bit about all of that tonight. When you rotate through the pediatric clerkship, you'll generally be split up into three settings. The newborn nursery, some of you will rotate through the neonatal ICU, the NICU, a fantastic place. The critical care that they do there is incredible. All my respect in the world to neonatologists and the families who are the strongest people in the NICU taking care of their newborns as they go through what would be a very difficult couple weeks or months for them. You rotate through outpatient offices. This is where the majority of pediatrics exist. You rotate with pediatricians. You rotate with excellent mid-level providers, PAs and NPs. You rotate with fantastic pediatric nurses, making sure that you understand not only how to take care of sick children when they come in, but also how to approach the well visit. We'll talk a little bit more about the well visit, well visit as we go along, but I think you'll agree with me by the end of this, hopefully, that how to approach the well visit in pediatrics is probably the most important thing most pediatricians want you to get out of your rotation in order to understand the approach to healthy growth and development of the average child. And then we'll talk about the inpatient services. Similar to the rest of your rotations, you'll be spending time in the hospital, taking care of patients either in the emergency room or admitted to the hospital, thinking about pediatric pathology that requires admission, why the patients were admitted, and how we can safely transfer them home in order to finish their healing process at home. Let's talk a little bit about how children are not small adults. Their physiology, their pathology, and how you talk to them, how you think about them, how you think about their pathology varies significantly from taking care of adult patients. One of the main goals of going through your pediatrics rotation is taking everything you've learned about approaching adult patients, understanding adult pathophysiology, and twisting it a little bit. Because children are not small adults. Their physiology is different how they breathe is different, their airways are different. The pathology is different. Pediatric abdominal pain is not adult abdominal pain. Pediatric chest pain is certainly not adult chest pain. And their approach is different. How do you talk to a toddler? What do you do? What do you say? It, isn't it hard? It is very hard. How do you talk to a school-age kid when they keep asking you questions, which are probably more ingenious than anything I could ever come up with? And how do you get through that wall that is an adolescent's affect in order to break through and have that moment where you feel like you made a difference in a teenager's life? How do you do that? It's a huge part of being a successful pediatrician. And as you rotate through your pediatrics clerkship, one of the things that your attendings will look most closely for is your approach to the pediatric patient. So just keep that in mind as we go through the rest of this talk and as you'll go through your rotation that whatever you've come up with, in order to approach adult patients successfully, just keep in mind that children should be a little bit different. 
and it can be uncomfortable at first, but I hope you'll agree that as you get more comfortable with it and they get more comfortable with you, it's a heck of a lot of fun. So children are not small adults. I'd said that their physiology is different. Let's look at the most obvious thing, right? You gotta know pediatric vital signs. The best way for any resident or attending to know that a student is not prepared for the pediatric clerkship is when they say, this patient is tachycardic, their heart rate's 110. Really? Maybe if they're 17 years old, but if the patient's two months old, four years old, 110 is totally fine. We don't worry about that. Now, do you need to memorize all of this? No, I don't know all of this off the top of my head. You get a feel for it over time, of course, hopefully. So no, I don't want you to print out this table and memorize it, but I do want you to respect that vital signs are different in kids. Know that the little kids breathe faster. Know that their heart rates are faster. Know that their blood pressures are lower, right? An adult, systolic blood pressure of 85, that's concerning. Systolic blood pressure of 85 in a newborn, also concerning, different reason. Blood pressure of 120 over 80 in an adult, that's perfect. Blood pressure of 120 over 80 in a toddler, I'm doing a renal workup to understand why that gets hypertensive, okay? Obviously their weight goes up as they age, that's not gonna surprise anybody, but know how children generally gain weight. Know when they double their birth weight, triple their birth weight. Gosh, residents and attendings like asking about that. I don't know why, but know that, you know, when do they double their birth weight? When do they triple? I guarantee you're gonna be asked that question at some point. If you go into your rotation armed with this knowledge that vital signs are going to be different, then you'll look like you're prepared. There's nothing that looks worse than when a student presents normal pediatric vital signs or abnormal or even worse the other way around. Don't get fooled by normal adult vital signs that are actually abnormal in pediatrics. You could miss some very significant pathology. The other thing about physiology is that kids compensate differently. Tachycardia, less scary. I was doing a lumbar puncture on an infant last night in, the, in my emergency room who came in with a fever. We were doing a septic workup as every baby under a month requires, blood, urine, LP, all of that fun stuff. And during the procedure, the patient's heart rate went up to 200. Sounds pretty scary if you're 80 years old. In an infant, completely well tolerated, even for 15 minutes at a time because children's hearts are healthy. Tachycardia in general is less scary in adults, uh, excuse me, less scary in children than it is in adults. Children don't have the coronary artery disease. They don't have the atherosclerotic uh, systemic vascular disease. And their hearts aren't previously ischemic or injured. So they tolerate tachycardia way better and for much longer periods of time than they do in adults. Children have a higher body surface area to weight ratio. So they're more easily dehydrated. They lose a lot of insensible fluid through their skin. And they lose a lot of insensible fluid through their lungs. You lose a lot of insensible fluid when you breathe this quickly. You breathe out a lot of water vapor and you lose a lot of water vapor when you're little, but have a high surface area. So kids get dehydrated a lot. It's often complicating all of our disease processes and really important to appreciate that no matter what the patient has going on, chances are they're a little dehydrated. Also keep in mind that a toddler can't just go to the pantry or can't go to the cabinet or wherever you keep your glasses and get himself a glass of water, right? That two-year-old can't climb up, turn on the sink, and pour herself a glass to drink. So kids don't have access to water the way that we do in adults as well, which means that you're more likely to get dehydrated. Higher insensibles, larger body surface area ratio, 
don't have as ready an access to water and kids get dehydrated easily. And it's a problem because when they don't feel well, guess what they don't want to do? Drink. It's this rapidly progressive cycle and kids can get pretty sick from it. So appreciate that dehydration in children is often present, even if it isn't the chief complaint as a related complaint to their condition and hydrating a kid, no matter what they're coming in for, chances are it'll make them feel better. We talked about the fact that they've got more skin. Also keep in mind that they've got thinner skin. This is especially true in your neonates and your newborns. Not only do they lose fluid through their skin, they lose heat. If you've ever been in a NICU or a nursery, you've seen babies under warmers. Why? Because they lose heat like crazy. Yes, the majority of the heat is lost through their head, but they lose heat all over their bodies. So keep in mind that hypothermia in children is a huge problem, especially your newborns and your infants. And a lot of what we do is focused on keeping those kids warm. If you've ever been present at a delivery, if you've already rotated through OB, you'd see that even if a baby is born and not breathing, what is the first thing we do as neonatologists and pediatricians? We dry the kid off because the environmental heat loss is so detrimental to their physiology, even before we put on that bag and breathe for them. Remember their thinner skin, remember the heat loss. Know that kids can compensate their blood pressure much longer. Adults have this way of just sort of teetering and teetering and teetering and teetering and their blood pressure will slowly dip. Children, for whatever reason, and that reason we could sort of get into it, but it's probably not worthwhile at the moment, is that they actually maintain their blood pressure for much, 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 much longer and then crash. It's mostly because children actually compensate through stroke volume and tachycardia rather than uh, their systemic vascular alpha uh, signaling. But just know that even if a kid has a normal blood pressure, they could be really sick five minutes from now. Focus on how the kid looks. Don't focus on the blood pressure like you would do in adults. Adults trend down. Kids get sick really quickly. And the other thing that kids do is they desaturate. Total oxygen content in the blood is lower. Pulmonary reserve is lower. And if you take a look at this graph at the bottom, you'll, I'll orient you to it. On the x-axis is time in minutes. And on the y-axis is arterial oxygen saturation percentages. And what these curves are showing is time to desaturation. And I like to focus on the 90% because that's when we typically intervene for all of these patients. Let's focus on the normal adult. Time when there is zero minute ventilation. Minute ventilation is zero. A normal 70 kilo adult will desaturate below 90% eight minutes. Think about that. The average adult if you wanna say the average adult is somewhere between moderately ill and normal, that's probably fair. The average adult will take between six and eight minutes to drop their sat below 90% without breathing. Crazy, right? Look at the child, 10, 10 kilo child, it's four minutes. And in a baby with three kilos, it's more like 90 seconds, okay? So you just gotta remember, you don't need to remember, remember all of these facts specifically, but remember that their physiology is different and how we approach it is different. We care a lot about their breathing, their oxygenation. We're not as worried about their heart rates. We are worried when their blood pressures start to go down because that means they're about to fall off a cliff. Keep them warm, keep them hydrated, and most of your patients will feel much better. Pathology, this is the big one. Pediatric medicine was once described to me like finding a needle in a haystack. Most children are probably gonna be fine. All comers, obviously there are children with specific complex disease, your congenital cardiac patients, your patients 
with cancer, your patients with intrinsic, you know, uh, bad lung disease that you worry about, of course. But all comers pediatrics, they're probably going to be fine. That belly pain, probably going to be fine. That chest pain, probably going to be fine. That headache, probably going to be fine. We're not like adult medicine where we believe in CT scanners when you walk into the emergency room. And that's not because we disagree with what our adult emergency colleagues or our adult internal medicine colleagues do. They do exactly what they should do because the pretest probability of pathology in adult patients is higher. It just is. Kids tend to be okay. So what that means is that while most of your children are going to be fine, you really got to look for the ones who are. What, and what that means is that when you're on your clerkship, takeaway from the slide, is focus on the red flag issues, the red flag symptoms that say, hey, this kid could be the needle in the haystack, okay? And I'll be specific. Let's say you're worried about appendicitis, okay? Every kid who comes in with abdominal pain probably doesn't have appendicitis, okay? But it's the kid with a fever to 103 that you're worried about. Gastroenteritis or constipation typically isn't that febrile, right? It's the kid who is having abdominal pain and that current jelly stool where you worry about intussusception. No, kids who have belly pain and diarrhea, it's probably not concerning, right? What are the red flag stuff? Chest pain, really interesting study out there. Three out of a thousand kids with chest pain have a heart problem. Three out of a thousand. So what are the things that put, what are the three things that identify those three patients? Did they have chest pain while exerting themselves? That's a red flag. Okay. Do they have palpitations? That's a red flag. Those are the things that you're looking for. What can help you find the needle in the haystack? Because kids are generally okay. Adults are generally sick. It's just a difference of the field. So focus on those red flag symptoms that make you say, hey, I need to do a little bit more in this kid to make sure I'm not missing that kid with a PE. I'm not missing that kid with a brain tumor. I'm not missing that kid with osteomyelitis instead of muscle pain. Okay. If you focus on what makes a pediatrician worried, then you'll find that you'll succeed. And then the approach. This is the fun part, right? Interacting with children is what makes pediatricians happy. It's what brings us joy. And your approach to children has to be different than your approach to adults. I know that sounds obvious, but it is so, so important. The best medical students that I've had on my rotations are the ones who are willing to get down and dirty, who are willing to get low, who are making fools of themselves, who are just doing anything to make the kids laugh, who are asking them questions that are appropriate for their age level, that just let, I don't want to say let their dignity go out the window, but you know, it's a no shame kind of feel. You're dealing with children. They don't care if you're cool. They just want to laugh. So do that. Smile. That's the number one thing. I can't tell you. When we have medical students who don't smile, I'm like, I, it's a, you have a toddler. You've got a five-year-old in front of you. Smile. They're scared enough as it is. Get low. Get on their level. Talk to them. And talk simple. Developmental pediatricians will tell you that the average toddler doesn't listen to more than two to three words out of your mouth before they get distracted. So talk simply. What hurts? Anything else? Are you scared? Do you want this? Simple questions with simple answers and let the kid talk, okay? If you try to explain things to a child, you ever hear the saying, you can't logic your way out of something you didn't logic your way into? Children don't believe in logic, okay? So if you ever try to argue with the child, you're going to lose, I promise. 
and distract them. You would be surprised how much fear and anxiety play a role in how children interact with the medical profession. Do you have a little llama doll you can give them? Perfect. Stickers, even better. It's amazing how one sticker could save the day, especially if it's Thomas the Tank Engine. Bubbles, bubbles might as well be liquid gold. I prefer liquid gold. I'll take the bubbles when I'm dealing with the patient, okay? Find ways to distract them, find ways to make them comfortable. If you're lucky enough to work at an institution with child life, by all means, make sure that you have child life specialists come in and interact with your patients. God bless them, they are amazing, okay? Make it fun, reduce the anxiety, smile, and talk to them. I've had students say to me before, I don't know how to talk to kids. It's not hard. All you say, hey, what are you watching? What do you like doing? What are you doing this summer? Simple questions, simple answers, just to get their minds off of what's making them scared. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the success to your pediatric rotation. We talked about this, interact with the children. You cannot be successful on your pediatric rotation if you do not interact with the children. And I don't mean asking them your sample history. I don't mean doing a thorough physical exam as you learned in, you know, for the rest of your OSCEs. I mean getting down on their level, smiling, and trying to have fun with them. Even if you feel silly, no one else will think you're silly. Your residents are pediatricians. Your attendings are pediatricians. Really important for you to do that. I see a question uh, in the chat that was asked, like, what do you do? How do you interact with children when they have masks? It's a really good question, and it's really hard. Remember that you can smile with your eyes. Remember that you can smile with your voice. Yes, obviously it's harder when you're wearing a mask to make, and you're trying to distance, right? It's harder to have that close one-on-one -on -one interaction with your patients that you're used to, okay? Try to make jokes about your spaceman outfit. A lot of us uh, are in our hospital, the precautions, gowns, and masks, are yellow, so we make lots of minions jokes. We're all minions, or big bird, if you're tall, like I am, okay? There are ways to make it fun. Is it less than ideal? Absolutely, it is, you're right. But in the time of COVID, it's important that we do the best we can, despite all of the changes, despite parents wearing masks, despite children being forced to wear masks, to do our best to interact with them and reduce their anxiety in any way that we can. It's a great question, okay? We talked about getting out of your adult mindset. It's just, it just can't be the same. The physiology, the pathology, the approach to patients, it's gotta be different. Learning the newborn exam, it's different, okay? And we'll talk about it a little bit when we talk about the newborn nursery, but you really gotta be able to ace your newborn exam. And that means being comfortable holding a baby. If you're not comfortable holding a baby, you need to go up to your resident on the first day of the rotation and say, I am not comfortable holding children and I want to be, and they will respect that. Because you know what? We don't expect every student to be a pediatrician. We know not everyone's going into pediatrics and we know not everyone has had the opportunity to hold or interact with younger siblings or nieces and nephews, for example. But we want you to learn, we want you to be comfortable. So be comfortable holding children, ask to hold children, ask to be involved in their care and your residents will love you for it. We talked about risk tolerance for pathology. I won't go over that again. And we'll talk a little bit about the well visit when we talk to the outpatient pediatrics portion of your rotation. It is so important when you're outpatient, understanding how well children grow and develop is more important than what to do when they're sick. I do mean that how normal children grow and develop is a bigger goal educationally for your rotation than what to do when they're sick. Interact with children. I think I've mentioned that before. Okay.
So let's talk a little bit about the day in the life. We're just going to get into the weeds a little bit. Okay, what does it actually look like when you're on your rotation? Most students will rotate through the newborn nursery when you're on the rotation. This is taking care of, not surprisingly, newborns, okay? So your days will typically be filled with assessing patients. You'll have older patients who are one or two days old. And yes, those are the old patients. And you'll have new patients who are just born, okay? And you're going to be tasked with doing their exams, understanding how they've been doing in their very short lives, and then talking about what other medical tests and interventions are necessary before that patient can be safely discharged from with their parents. For these old patients who have been here since yesterday, if that's forever, right, you just want to know how they're doing. And honestly, the metrics for a baby, relatively low bar. We love them, but you can't expect too much from them. Did they eat? Are they nursing? Are they taking a bottle? Depending on the parent's preferences. Did they pee? How many times? Did they poop? Babies should poop, especially when they're nursing and bottle feeding. They poop a lot, let me tell you. Okay. And then we'll talk a little bit about the newborn checklist. Okay. The new patients, newborn patients, you're going to go and you're going to see patients who are hours old. But how old are they really? Were they born at term, as defined generally after 37 weeks gestational age? Were they born late preterm, you know, 35, 36 weeks? Or were they really born preterm before 35 weeks? And that sort of gets in the discussion of neonatology and what you're doing now. And then you need to understand the parents, not only the prenatal tests, which is what's listed on the slide here. You need to know mom's vaccine status, her group B strep status. You need to understand um, whether she's had any exposure to TB, HIV, et cetera, all of that. Hepatitis B, that's a big one. But also, who are their parents? Where do they live? What are their supports? How can we best support them in being successful taking care of their child? Are there social insecurities that we can help with? Housing, food, transportation, education, jobs. It's our opportunity to help this child live a successful and happy life by helping its parents. It's one of the most important things we can do is support parents when it comes to raising healthy children. And this is really when you get to practice the newborn exam because you will be surrounded by babies, okay? Key parts about the newborn exam that medical students often forget or don't do adequately, I have listed here. Fontanelle, that's a soft spot, okay? There's actually a bunch of fontanelles. The, when people say the fontanelle, they usually mean the anterior fontanelle up here. It's also temporal fontanelle, it's occipital fontanelle. What is the fontanelle? Is it open? Is it flat? Why is it important? It gives us an idea if the patient is dehydrated. It lets us know if the patient has increased intracranial pressure. So assess their fontanelle. Always, always, always look at their eyes. Before a patient can be discharged, it's important that we know that the patient has an adequate red reflex, which is the absence of leukocoria. When you take the ophthalmoscope and look in their eyes, you should see a nice red light reflected back at you. That is a healthy retina. If you see an absence of a red reflex or a white reflex that is concerning and cause for urgent ophthalmologic consultation. Murmurs, good luck. With heart rates in 150 to 160 beats per minute, hearing murmurs in the newborn exam is extraordinarily difficult, but that does not mean you shouldn't try. Put your stethoscope on the patient and listen to their heart and just be astounded that cardiologists can actually hear murmurs when it's going that fast. Pediatric cardiologists have some of the best ears in the business. I don't know how they do it, but they're incredible. Hip exam. One of the things that we cannot miss in newborns, developmental dysplasia of the hip. So ask your residents how to do the maneuvers and how to do them safely. It's been changing a little bit. So how to maneuver those hips in and out of their sockets to make sure that the hips have formed correctly. Highest risk are girls who are born breech. 
and making sure that we're not missing something that could impair the infant's ability to walk later in life. And then reflexes. I don't just mean their patellar reflexes. I mean their infant reflexes, the moral reflex, the Binsky reflex. Those are things that you should be checking on your newborns and make sure that they're present because of their immature neurologic system. And you'll look that much better when you present to your residents and attendants. Discharge anticipatory guidance is probably the most important thing we do in the nursery other than making sure the baby is eating, pooping, and peeing. Tell the parents, and you're gonna need some education on this yourself, but that's where the learning comes in. Learn how to counsel parents on what they do with this child when they take them home. How many times do they eat a day? How many times do they poop a day? Can I take the kid out in the sun? When's too early for sunscreen? What should the baby wear? Uh, I have a car seat. Did I put it in the car right? Is someone going to check up on me? When am I going to see the pediatrician? What about the shots? All of that stuff is the important things that we can do for parents before they get discharged. So learn about it, practice teaching it, have someone watch you to make sure that you're doing it well, and then feel empowered to help parents in their first step for new parents anyway. Obviously, there are lots of parents who've done this before, but help new parents take that first scary step into parenthood, taking that child home. So what are your outpatient days are gonna look like? These are your office visits with a pediatrician, often plus or minus an experienced mid-level like a PA or a nurse practitioner. And these are typically split into sick visits or well visits, okay? The sick visits are pretty obvious. Kid's sick, they come into the office to be seen, they've got a chief complaint, you manage that chief complaint. Not the focus, I would argue, of your outpatient time. I think that your outpatient time should be focused on the well visits. You'll remember when you were little that children are expected to go to the pediatrician at a minimum of every year once they get into school age to make sure that they are growing and developing normally. While at first the list can seem dauntingly long and the deeper you get into it, it really does become apparent how hard it is to be an excellent pediatrician. It's a long list and the pediatricians who are excellent at it are really, really good. But there's a certain key things that you can focus on to make sure that you're hitting the high points. And if you just think about growth and development, then you're probably going to hit most of them, okay? The first thing is always the parental concerns. How do you think your kid's doing? What are you worried about? And then not unlike the newborns, we talk about eating, pooping, peeing, and sleeping, right? Is the kid eating okay? How's the kid's weight gain? Is the kid stooling okay? You worry about constipation at certain points in life. How's the kid peeing? Making sure that the kid isn't dehydrated or having some other issue. Is the kid sleeping okay? That's when you talk about screen time and video games and sleep hygiene, and bedtime, adequate sleep for adolescence, all of that good stuff. And then you get into development. If there is one thing that pediatricians really care about other than the patient's growth, it's their development. For the younger kids, are they hitting milestones? Are they developing the way that they should? Are you worried about a kid with autism, okay? You'll learn about when you screen for autism, you'll learn about how, what um, uh, tests you use, how you refer, and then what are the warning signs, okay? And then as the kids get older, how are they doing in school? How are they doing with their peer group? How are they doing with that time in their life where they need to balance independence and making sure that they're being a good member of their family and their community? All of the interesting stuff that goes into being an excellent outpatient pediatrician and more important than the sick visits, okay? And boy, are you guys gonna talk about shots. Immunizations, immunizations, immunizations. They don't cause autism, I'm sorry if you thought that, but they are so, so important to not only the little kids who get them multiple times in the first year, but understanding the epidemiology of pa uh, pediatric disease 
why we give the shots when we do, and not only what the schedule is. I hope no one makes you memorize the schedule because the CDC is a fancy app you can look at on your phone, so really no need to memorize it. But what to do if kids get off schedule? What to do if parents don't want the vaccines? What to do if parents want to space out the vaccines? And when you might give an extra vaccine or two, a huge part of pediatric outpatient visits. Then you can think about sick visits. And then the hospital. This is probably the one that you guys are going to be most familiar with. It is going to echo most of the time that you've spent on other rotations, except you'll be taking care of kids. You've got your sign out and pre-rounding time in the morning. You'll have your rounding time after that, which is obviously the time when you need to show off an excellent pediatric presentation. You'll tend to have conference in the middle of the day. At some point, you'll do your afternoon work, following up on your patients. You'll see admissions, you'll write notes, evening sign out and go home. I bolded go home because if someone tells you to go home, I hope you go home. I know that when we told our students to go home, we really did mean it. Pediatricians are nice people in general, in general. I would say the vast majority of pediatricians are nice people. You choose to spend your life taking care of children and there's just a certain kind of kind nature to you. That might be self-serving, but I'm gonna go with it. So when we say go home, we really do mean go home. Medical school is hard, residency is hard. Take the time when you can get it. Talk to your patients, spend time with them, and then go home. It really is okay, all right? Often you'll have uh, downtime during these rotations, bring a book, use it to your advantage, and make sure that you uh, try to minimize the amount of time that you're just sitting down um, and waiting for the next thing to happen, okay? But if you spend two hours in the afternoon when you're done writing your notes, sitting and playing games with kids in the playroom, then you're spending your pediatrics rotation appropriately. So what's the best way to communicate with pediatric residents, okay? Introduce yourself, all right? Not introduce yourself via text message, introduce yourself in person, uh, ideally, depending on your COVID era policies. Um, and then I always found it effective to once you introduce yourself, actually text the resident your name and number. So not only can they contact you easily and you can contact them depending on your paging system, but then they'll remember your name. It's nothing personal. Residents just happen to have a lot of and be proactive. The medical students who do the best on their rotations are the ones who on day one say, can we talk about expectations? What can I do to be an excellent student on this rotation? What do you expect of me? What don't you like students to do? And how can I avoid those things, okay? See patients, ask for lectures. If you don't know something and you're often not gonna know a lot about pediatrics, it's a specialty, ask questions. Why do we do it that way? Why don't we give this patient this medicine? I noticed that you thought about this diagnosis. What about the presentation made you think that way? All of those are excellent questions that not only help your learning, but tell the team that you're invested in at least learning as much about pediatrics as you can while you're there, whether or not you are going to go on to be a pediatrician yourself, okay? Spend time in your notes. Sure, write good notes. I'm sure it's important. Residents probably care less about notes than you do. Uh, participate in sign out. It is always, you know, everyone's got a different opinion on whether students should participate in sign out and whatnot. I think that students should absolutely be allowed to participate in sign out because you're going to be doing it as an intern. So you might as well practice with it now. And it's an excellent opportunity for you to not only practice the sign out process, but to really get into the weeds of your patients and understand, okay, 
what's going on, what are we doing, and what are our contingency plans? And then your residents can then help you fill in any gaps that you find in the process. Do the admission. This does not supersede going home, okay? If the admission comes at 6.05, you're supposed to go home at six, go home. If the admission comes at four o'clock, you're not going home at six, do the admission. The best learning in pediatrics is always with the first presentation. Okay, so why is the kid coming into the hospital? What is their problem? And what are we going to do for them? Focus on that, do the admission. Yes, obviously it's more work, but more work in this case actually does mean more learning. I'll give it to you that more work does not always mean more learning, but with admissions, I believe that it does. Try to make sure the residents don't give you all of the scut work that goes along with it, okay? And then pediatricians value ourselves on getting to know our patients. So put time into the small things. Talk to your patients. Understand their story. What do they love? What are they scared of? What are they excited about? What are they doing this summer or not because of COVID? What are they sad about? That's a good thing to talk about. Womp womp. But learn about your patients. Talk to their families. Talk to their parents. Talk to their parents about what their parents are proud of, what they're excited for. It, it, nothing makes a parent smile more than a student or a resident talking to them about their own children. Okay, probably the best medical students or something that the best medical students do is anticipate. Okay, as you get to know your team and as you get to know your patients, start looking ahead and saying, okay, I noticed that for these patients, we do X, Y, and Z. So before we get to that patient, I'm gonna prep X or I'm gonna think about Y or I'm gonna look into Z and report back when we come to that patient so the team can know ahead of time what that information is. It's an excellent way to stand out and an excellent way to let the team know that you're invested in these patients and you're doing your best to be a team player. It's also good education in the process. That's probably 201 level, something that the best medical students do and the ones who end up getting honors, okay? Communicating well with families, we talked. So this is the reality, right? Some of you will be having significant virtual components to your clerkship now that we're in the COVID era. I hate that we have to use the term the COVID era, but it's since we do not necessarily know when this is going to end, it's good to plan for what might be the inevitable over the next six to 12 months, okay? That means understanding what your synchronous case-based discussions and didactics are going to be, understanding if there's going to be pre-work and coming to the clerkship prepared. It's a little bit of a flipped classroom model nowadays where a lot of schools, and what that means, where a lot of schools are giving you work to do outside of the actual synchronous case-based discussions and then coming together to then discuss the cases in real time and answer questions. The more you read beforehand and the more you come to the discussions ready and prepared, not only the more you'll get out of it, but when you're limited in your interaction with residents and attendings, their impression of how invested you are in these learning cases can matter when it comes to either letters or your, evalu your evaluations down the road, okay? You'll also be assigned asynchronous, uh, asynchronous cases. I'm sure some of you have uh, already uh, done some of the aquifer cases. If you haven't, don't worry, I'm sure it'll come up. And if it doesn't, don't worry about it. But aquifer, it used to be actually clip exams for pediatrics, a lot of where this started, um, are asynchronous cases that go over a lot of key points in not only pediatrics, but a lot of uh, other um, clerkships as well. So you'll be doing those uh, probably offline. You'll have institution specific resources that they'll assign for you as well. And some of you will be assigned telehealth visits. The reality is, is that with the limitation and outpatient availability and the 
uh, limiting of number of visits that pediatricians are doing in their office, the reality is that we're doing more telehealth visits. So learn what it means to do an excellent telehealth visit. Learn the difference between when you're taking care of a patient in person and when you're following up with them over a virtual uh, visit. What do you need to do to maintain that strong bond with the family? What do you need to do to maintain that strong bond with the patient? And how can you answer all of their questions cogently and in a way that reassures the parents moving forward that they feel like they got something meaningful out of that appointment, okay? Obviously, this is gonna mean an emphasis on self-learning, okay? Um, one of the questions that came through to me is that for in-person rotations, how do you know when you're done with the clinical work um, and you now have downtime to read a textbook or study? I think the question that has always been successful for me and communicating with residents in that type of instance is asking, what else can I do to be helpful? Or what, what else is there for me to do to be helpful? And I think that question will often be met with, oh, honestly, there isn't a whole lot right now, but I'll let you know when we think of something. Sometimes they'll say, oh, there is an admission coming, and you know, do you want to help with the admission? But I think if you have started off the rotation by asking about expectations and by working hard, the question of what else is there for me to do to be helpful or what else do you think I could be doing right now to help my own education won't be met with skepticism, but will be met with sincerity and you'll get good answers, okay? Questions like that are based off of trust and they are based off of good foundational relationships that you create early in the rotation. But it is okay to ask, what can I be doing right now to maximize my education? Or I, you know, I finished all the tasks that were assigned to me. Are there other things I can do to be helpful? And if the answer is no, then you uh, find your space to sit down and study and make sure that the residents have your cell phone number or contact information with your pager in case something exciting comes along that they want you to be involved with. Never just disappear. Not only will the residents uh, be a little put off by that because they won't know where you are and it feels like you're not trying to be part of the team, but if something exciting happens and they want you to come back and be part of it, to be part of the education, if they don't have your contact information, they can't find you. So that goes right into maximizing your clerkship study. So find these pockets of time. Don't just sit around. And it's okay to ask your residents if uh, they currently feel that this could be one of those times. Okay. Some of the best learning happens when you connect didactics cases with patients that you've seen. You never remember anything better than when you review something because of a patient you took care of earlier. It's the faces, it's the emotions, it's the human element that helps you remember. So instead of going home at night and just reading your textbook, go home at night and think about the patients you saw that day. Think about that baby with bronchiolitis that gave your heart pause because they were breathing in the 80s and desatting to 87%. Think about that. That face, that emotion will help you remember. Read about bronchiolitis. Think about that adolescent who spoke to you, divulged confidently in you about his struggles with alcohol abuse or drug abuse, and then go home and read about substance abuse disorder in adolescence. Think about cessation. Think about smoking cessation. Think about your school-aged children who came in with abdominal pain that you thought and the team thought was gastroenteritis and ended up having appendicitis. Think about that feeling of realizing that they had a surgical emergency. Go home and read about it. 
I promise you that you'll remember it better than if you just leaf through a textbook and can't connect it to the patients that you took care of, okay? Stay connected, especially in the COVID era, okay? Make sure that you're interacting with your peers, have reading groups together, have discussion groups together, talk through cases that you saw together, even if you guys aren't necessarily in the same place. Spending a half hour a week talking with your peers about cool cases you saw in the ward will help you remember, keep you accountable, and make sure that those patients stick better in your brain when you come to your shelf, okay? And just... Try to keep in mind that you can't do everything, okay? Too many resources are as problematic as too few. And I saw a question in the chat about good books to bring up while on rotation. Let's, uh, let's talk about that uh, in three slides. So we're gonna get there, it's a great question, okay? And the reason why you need to be cognizant of your time, okay, is that your free time is limited. When you think about your shelf exam, when you think about studying for step two, your time's limited. It's not like step one, you've got significantly less dedicated study time. So it's important to know that you need to spend your time doing as high yield stuff as possible, okay? Also know that there is no consensus best resource for your shelf exams and for step two CK like there is for step one, okay? Step one, Pathoma, UWorld, first aid, right? And then of course, everyone's got a preference about the plus one that they do in, in, on top of that. But Pathoma First Aid World, of course, it's not like that for your shelf exams. It's not like that for step two. And because there is no obvious front runner, there are a lot of competing resources. We'll talk about some of them, okay? I believe that actively learning is always the best way to learn. QBanks, flashcards, always better than reading, okay? And don't cram, you all know that by now. So when you are studying for the shelf, the pediatric shelf specifically, Keep in mind that there are a, there's a huge focus on pediatric specific knowledge that is just not found elsewhere in medicine. And that stuff is gonna be the stuff that's tested, okay? There are a lot of questions on the pediatric shelf about growth and development, normal developmental milestones. Yes, it feels a little bit dry, but know when children should be able to hop on one foot. Know when a children can be able to draw a triangle, when they can draw a circle. Know when they should be speaking two words, when they should be speaking 200 words, when their speech is totally intelligible to a stranger. That is going to be asked on the shelf, I promise. Know about immunizations because you're gonna be asked. I don't think you're gonna be asked about the immunization schedule, but you are going to be asked about the kinds of immunizations and what to do when patients are too spaced out or have deferred immunizations. Anticipatory guidance, safety, you're gonna be asked about helmets. You're gonna be asked about car seats. You're gonna be asked about seat belts. You're gonna be asked about pediatric nutrition and sugar-sweetened beverages and exercise. You are gonna be asked about parents who want to know about nursing, parents who wanna know about their baby pooping. Parents are gonna to wanna to know all sorts of stuff and anticipate that that anticipatory guidance is gonna be on your shelf exam, okay? And then know a little neonatology because neonatology does overlap is a part of pediatrics, okay? So know what to do with your newborns who are sick, know what to do with your preemies, know what to do with patients who have moms with various medical histories, gestational diabetes, what do you do with a baby who's born large for gestational age when you think about things like hypoglycemia. That stuff does come up, don't write it off. Sometimes it can feel like more of a part of OB than it is pediatrics, but it is a key part of pediatrics and make sure you understand what to do in the delivery room and what to do once you're just outside the delivery room as well. 
So you asked about books. This is my favorite book, okay? In my opinion, the main resources for the pediatric shelf are UWorld, Online MedEd. I think their videos are fantastic, albeit not comprehensive topic-wise. They're excellent videos, but they don't necessarily uh, include the entire breadth of pediatric education. And case files. A lot of people feel very strongly that BRS Pediatrics is better than case files. There really isn't a consensus. I would pick one of them and stick with it. I think BRS tends to be a little bit denser. Case files uh, tends to be exactly that, cases, which I think a lot of people are very um, happy to study instead. So I would pick these three resources and stick with them. Remember, you do not have unlimited time. This is not your dedicated step one study period. You cannot have three pediatric textbooks and you world and online med ed and try to do practice questions. Oh, and read about your patients and do well in your clerkship. You just can't. So don't try and you don't have to. Do all of the pediatrics uh, in you world. Okay, there are some subject tests too. Do the online med ed and read case files. Okay, and when you read case files, read the cases that mirror the patients you saw earlier in the day. That's how you're going to succeed. Okay, if you're really into supplementary resources, Anki, of course, I love flashcards, so use Anki. I think it's fantastic. Make your own flashcards. It's better if you do it yourself. AMBOSS is uh, the, initially the group out of Germany that created this uh, step two CK um, question bank that a lot of people love. I think UWorld is better. If you really want a second question bank, which is aggressive, then I would probably go with AMBOSS. People seem to be liking it better than Kaplan. Um, Emily Holiday Ramahi is a, a lovely... Um, I think she's a radiation oncologist, if I remember correctly. Um, and she is an excellent medical educator who has both YouTube videos and PowerPoints available, freely accessible online or easy to find online. That she goes through a ton of high yield content for essentially every clerkship area. And the work that she has on pediatrics is excellent as well. So if you're looking for one more video to watch or one more PowerPoint to go through that's really high yield and sort of to the point, uh, look up um, Dr. Ramahi's work. So when you're studying for peds, remember, basic science, really not as important, except when you're talking about vaccines, okay? Remember that the differential diagnosis in pediatrics is so important because it's the needle in the haystack phenomenon, right? Most kids tend to be fine, so you get a much higher noise-to-signal ratio. What are the kids that you're worried about, and when do you need to do a little bit more? Okay, which means you need to understand the best next steps. When do you take that next step? When do you do the extra test? Because we're not imaging everybody. We're not even doing labs on everybody. So when do you take the next step? What makes you worried? And what is the red flag symptom that makes you do the little bit extra in order to diagnose that needle in the haystack? Okay, and this means a philosophical shift from your adult patients. Pediatric chest pain is not adult chest pain. Pediatric headaches, not adult headaches. Pediatric abdominal pain is not adult abdominal pain. And boy, is pediatric fever different than adult fever, especially in your neonates, okay? So you got to rewrite your illness scripts a little bit, okay? And think about what is your initial approach to these patients? And then what is that thing that makes you do the next step? Maximize UWorld, I think you guys know this. It is my personal opinion that the best way to get better at answering questions for a test is to answer questions for practice, period. Answering questions is a separate skill than amassing knowledge. You can read all you want, you can watch videos all you want, but unless you practice taking questions, you will never get better at taking questions. Imagine that. So use your UWorld time, complete your QBank during your clinical year, but certainly do all of your pediatrics questions and redo your incorrects and do them again. 
if you do nothing else, do you will. Okay. I told you I love Anki. I love flashcards. If you want to take your world to the next level, if you get easy questions wrong, and I don't mean questions that only 20 or 30% of people got right. I mean, questions that 70, 80, 90% of people got right, make a flashcard. Drill those flashcards, okay? Yes, there are other readily available prepackaged flashcards uh, groups out there. Again, I firmly believe that making your own flashcards is an excellent way to do it. If you don't, um, if Anki isn't your uh, cup of tea, I find memorying also extremely effective as well. We talked about case files, they're fantastic. Other resources, uh, we talked about Amboss, we talked about um, the NBME Pediatrics Forums, those are great. I'm not even gonna talk about pretest or clinical mastery. I don't even want you to consider other resources. Too many, okay? Most importantly, stay positive. Not only because you've made it this far in medical school, but you have made it this far through what is a very, very difficult COVID era, what has been a very difficult week for our country, uh, specifically this week, as so many of us grapple uh, with the institutional racism and issues that just plague our country, it has been an exceptionally difficult time for so many people. And it is exceptionally difficult for medical students for, to feel empowered, to stay positive, and to keep in mind that you've made it this far there are people that care about you and to remember that you've got a lot of resources at your back that you should key into if you feel like you need them, okay? You've accomplished so much so ready already and remember that although it is a long road, you're already experts, okay? There's a light at the end of the tunnel, you're getting there and be confident. You guys know more than you think you know. You are so integral to the teams, you have value and you matter. So please keep that in mind, whether in the wards or throughout, all of you matter. All of you are bright, intelligent, curious people who have value, and it's important to keep that in mind, even the worst of days, that you guys are gonna go on to do incredible things in the world and for the people in the world. So thank you for the work that you do, and even it, it, when it gets hard, just keep in mind that we are uh, very lucky to be doing the work that we do and taking care of patients. So how can we help? Med school tutors has been doing this for a long time. And the bottom line is that we are with you every step of the way, whether that's being with you through your clerkship, whether that is being at your side through your test prep, whether that is being at your side through your application processes, we are here for you. We specialize in one-to-one -one relationships and we have tutors in every field who have excelled at clerkships, at testing, at application processes who want to help you, who care about you as people and want you to succeed. Custom scheduling, adaptive sessions, making sure that we are in regular communication between sessions and taking everything that you give us to help you succeed at the highest levels. Whether you want a longer term tutoring relationship for a USMLE exam, whether you want a shorter term relationship just to get through your shelf exam, whether you just want a one-on-one -on -one session to help you plan out your third year, we're here for you. As you get into your application processes, if you wanna pick the brain of people who have gone through your application processes, we're here for you. We care about students and it is our mission as a company in order to support students in your goal of taking care of patients and making the world a better place. So perfect, so this is the Q&A session now, and I'm just gonna read some of them as we go along. Uh, so the first question that came through is, uh, suggestions for interacting with children during COVID, how can you engage with them given the current circumstances? So it's very hard. 
medicine in general has changed and not necessarily for the better. And it's hard. Know your institutional policies. I know that um, where I work, the child life specialists have been excellent in creating pre-packaged gifts that can essentially be picked up clean. Um, so uh, stickers that are clean, toys that are clean. I know there's been intensive cleaning processes to make sure uh, that everything we give to children are essentially clean and sterile. So look into see if your institution has that. And the truth is you just gotta be extra goofy. There's a lot of stress, right? We're stressed because of COVID. We're stressed because of what's going on in our country right now. We're stressed because of everybody's wearing masks and no one knows who anyone is and everyone's in gowns and it's just amplified for children. So be silly, laugh, smile, crack stupid jokes, laugh with families and take the extra minute to get to know your kids and get to know who they are and what their hopes and dreams are, what they're scared of and how you can help. It's that little extra step that makes a difference. Is it gonna be the way that it was before? Maybe not for a while, but there are things that we can do to make kids more comfortable. So take that extra step. Are there any resources I used every day um, to make sure I have during rounds or any apps to have that are on uh, your phone to be helpful? Yes, actually there are. Um, so the apps that I have on my phone, uh, the first one is the CDC uh, vaccination schedule. I'm trying to look up, I think it's actually just called vaccine schedule. I'm looking it up on my phone right now. Um, and it's published by the CDC and it is a very intuitive interactive um, vaccine uh, schedule map uh, that not only clearly tells you when children are due for vaccines, but also tells you individually what you do if someone is late on vaccines or needs catch-up vaccines. It's immensely helpful. I recommend having it on your phone. The other app that I have that's helpful, other than up-to-date, obviously, and I don't think I could say enough about it, uh, the CDC also publishes an STD treatment app, which comes in helpful when you have your teens coming into clinic and saying, hey, I want to be tested for STIs. So you'll know who's at risk and then what you do to treat patients for suspected or confirmed uh, gonorrhea or chlamydia, trichomonas, how you treat partners, prep, everything that you need to know to protect uh, patients from HIV infection uh, and what to do after uh, a patient might have been exposed. So those are the two apps uh, on my phone which are really useful. When you're in the newborn nursery, there's actually an, um, an app called LactMed which tells you which medicines are safe to use while breastfeeding. Immensely helpful. Uh, otherwise, you'd need to be a pharmacist to know all of it. LexiComp has some of it, but isn't uh, as, as helpful, I have found, compared to LACMED. And it'll tell you what meds are safe while breastfeeding based on the available data. It'll rank all the medicines based on evidence that it's safe, which is an A, it's been proven safe, all the way down to X, which is a void. Um, so I found that very helpful as well. Otherwise, it is helpful just to have, and a lot of rotations do this now, um, they give you uh, a, a pediatric vital sign, uh, like handout, a little pamphlet that I think is ha helpful to keep with you, as well as pediatric dosing. I didn't talk about this at all, but remember that pediatric medicines are all dosed in milligram per kilogram, not your standard dosing per adults, which means that you got to do math, my least favorite part of medicine, while you're taking care of all these kids, right? Ibuprofen is 10 per kilo. I, acetaminophen is 15 per kilo, right? Benadryl is 6 per kilo, right? So all that stuff that you just keep in mind, it's helpful to have in front of you because there's no reason to memorize all of those medicines, but it is important to get them right. Perfect. Well, it was 
great talking to you guys. Thank you guys for coming. Uh, if you are interested in continuing to work with our tutors or consultants at Med School Tutors, we'd love to hear from you. Our contact information is at the bottom of the screen here. Please feel free to contact us on social media, send us an email, call, go to our website. We'd love to hear from you. And if there's something that isn't on our website that you're interested in, just contact us. We have so many customizable packages and so many excellent people and tutors who want to work with you and want to help you succeed. We are fully capable of addressing any and all concerns and hopes that you have. So thank you for coming tonight. We hope to hear from you. And I hope the rest of you have a wonderful and safe evening and a wonderful and safe rest of your week. We hope this was helpful and that it helped take some of the guesswork out of the equation for you. If you have any questions or would like one-on-one -on -one tutoring, get in touch with us via our website, medschooltutors.com, via email, hq at medschooltutors.com, or give us a call, if you're old school like that, at 212-327-0098. Also, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, share, and rate us on your podcast app. And if you want more helpful, free information, Visit our blog at medschooltutors.com, check us out on social media at medschooltutors, or visit our forum at usmletutors.com. Thanks for listening. Be well.